With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host. Gary Rath and our website, economyofone.com. And economyofone.com, as is our Facebook, an economy of one. Amazon buying Whole Foods. Now, this is interesting to me, more so as a, an outside observer of companies like Amazon and what they do and trying to figure out what Jeff Bezos is thinking. In my mind, there's no question he's a savant. He's, he's a genius. But it was an interesting acquisition. It's interesting because Whole Foods, their model on the surface appears to be a totally different business model than Amazon. But as we'll get into this, not so much. Bezos is... Uh, a smart guy. Now, in the past, Amazon has acquired uh, over 80 other companies. But the most they've ever paid for any of those companies is $1.2 billion. And that was for shoe company Zappos. Now, for Whole Foods, they paid $13.7 billion. Now, what's interesting is the market reaction. Generally speaking, when a company buys another company, and we'll get into the motivation as to why a company buys another company or some of the reasons they buy other companies in a few minutes. But when a company buys another company, they generally pay a premium over the current share price. Now, there's a couple reasons they do that. One is they need the current shareholders' approval. So they're buying votes. So companies will pay a premium partially to get the existing shareholders to approve the transaction. Another reason they pay a premium is to eliminate other bidders. How many times have we seen it both publicly and, and privately? I mean, you and I have been to estate sales and auctions and that kind of stuff. And if you see somebody bidding on something, if you know that person or something about them or something like that, you it, it raises your confidence level as to what something is worth. So if Bezos is willing to buy Whole Foods, and he just offered the 
day's closing price of the stock, somebody's going to say, hey, wait a minute, he knows something. It's worth more than what he's paying. I'm going to bid against him. I'm going to get in the game and muck it up. So they will pay to get shareholder approval quickly. They will pay a premium to eliminate some of the bidders. Now, the market, if the market exists, if the if there's an attitude out there of the market, the market looked at that and said, whoa, geez, if Bezos is willing to buy Whole Foods, Bezos doesn't care how long he goes before he makes money. This is going to hurt the big players. So when it was announced that Amazon was buying Whole Foods, Walmart, which has the largest share of the market in groceries, Kroger, which has a large share of the market, and Costco all took a serious hit on their stock. Now, the other thing that happens when companies buy a company and pay a premium, naturally the company they're buying, the stock increases to match the premium amount. But generally speaking, the purchasing company, in this case, Amazon, generally their stock will go down because they're spending money, they're buying something. What was unusual in this case is not only did Whole Foods stock go up 35%, matching the premium that Amazon was willing to pay. But Amazon stock went up as well. And Amazon shares jumped by 2.4%. Now they paid $13.7 billion or offered $13.7 billion to buy Whole Foods. In one day, their stock increased $11 billion in market valuation. So essentially washed it out, washed it out. They essentially buying the company for a couple billion dollars last Friday. Now it's been a couple more days and I'm sure they've made that price back. Now 70 to 90% of acquisitions like this fail. And the idea, one of the reasons that companies buy companies is to try to create some economies of scale. So you buy the competition or you buy a company that has a complementary product or service to yours and you try to get rid of, you know, overlapping functions idle capacity, if you have manufacturing or warehouses or whatever that have excess capacity, you can consolidate. You can consolidate geographically. You can expand geographically. You can get product market extension. And we're going to talk about these in a couple minutes here. This kind of stuff fascinates me. I, I, I hope you pick up on that. But it's fun to look at something like this because Amazon is interesting. They built their company with no brick and mortar bookstores 
and dominate the market. So what do they do? They put together brick and mortar bookstores. <laughs> Fascinating how he does things. So, okay, mergers and acquisitions. Um, I told you about the the uh, economies of scale, the the geographical uh, roll ups, the the product uh, market extensions, uh, those kind of things. Sometimes they look really good on paper, and they don't work real well in real life. Pepsi-Cola is one of those. Pepsi-Cola bought Frito-Lay. Perfect match. Direct store, delivery, logistics that Pepsi had and honed over the years worked perfect for Frito-Lay. So they decided to acquire Quaker Oats. And that traditional warehouse delivery method that Pepsi had that translated so well to Frito-Lay did not work well with Quaker. And consequently, the acquisition didn't meet their financial expectations. Now, the most interesting M&A merger is investing in a business model that is yet to Happened. Walmart buying Jet.com for $3 billion last year. Unilever bought Dollar Shave Club. Paid a billion dollars for it. Now, Dollar Shave Club's got an interesting story, but Unilever bought them because they saw the writing on the wall. Dollar Shave Club didn't make a lot of money, if any. General Motors spent $500 million on Lyft. So another reason for mergers and acquisitions is buying these startups. Uh, They have growth potential, but they haven't made any money yet. So if you got the cash to spare, you can take a chance on some of these. And some of them will hit. Many of them won't. Amazon buying Whole Foods, that's it's in a, a class by itself. Okay, Amazon is not going to consolidate the grocery sector. I said before, Walmart is the big dog. They, they got 14.5% of the food and grocery market. Whole Foods only has 1.2%. While Amazon's share before Whole Foods was only 0.19%. Now, why would Amazon want Whole Foods? I think they want Whole Foods because of the overlap in data and Whole Foods shoppers. Whole food shoppers, on average, 60% of them are Amazon Prime members. You know, Amazon has this setup where you can buy food, you know, basics, bread, cheese, milk, just as you would any other store, but there's no checkout lines. You walk in, you pick up what you want, you walk out. Now, they have a patent 
from 2014 that combines embedded sensors, machine learning, and artificial intelligence so they can identify shoppers and their grocery items and stuff. So you walk in, you pick it up, you walk out, you get charged for it. It's one-click ordering, brick-and-mortar style. Are they going to do that with Whole Foods? I don't know. One thing I do know is Bezos is smart enough that he's not going to screw up the brand of Whole Foods. Whole Foods has a brand. People go there not to save money. They go there for organic stuff, humanely treated animals and chickens and no antibiotics and all that kind of stuff that people will pay a premium for. They've got 456 store locations across the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. Most of their clientele is affluent. And Bezos has a great line that he repeats over and over and over, and he's repeated it for 20 years. It remains day one. We've never seen a deal quite like Amazon buying Whole Foods. I'm very interested in this because I don't have no idea where he's going to take it. He's three steps ahead of the rest of us, but it's going to be interesting. Can you imagine talking to Alexa, saying what food you want, and then it shows up at your door? I mean, it, it, this is... This is interesting. This is interesting. So uh, he'll have curbside pickup services and web store presentations and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, I wanted to spend a little time on this because there's some interesting economic lessons to be learned from this acquisition. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. As long as we're talking about Amazon, there's another aspect to Amazon I wanted to touch on. And that is when Amazon announced it was going to buy Whole Foods, the stock market moved kind of strangely. And what I mean by that is um, while Amazon and Whole Foods stock went up, its competitors went down, but the rest of the market did nothing. Okay, one would even say um, it was complacent. I was reading an article written in the Wall Street Journal by a good guy I know called Greg Yip that said maybe it's not complacency, maybe it's stagnation. What he's implying is we need companies like Amazon to disrupt things in in the economy. And I don't mean disrupt in a negative way. I mean disruption through innovation, through different types of marketing, through different visions of how things should happen. He compares that action by Amazon to General Electric. Now, I've been around a long time, and a long time ago, we used to think of General Electric essentially as as a mutual fund in itself. 
GE was very diverse. It was in all sectors of the market. It led many of those sectors. You know, back in my day, it was Jack Welch that headed up GE. And Jeffrey Imelt just recently announced that he was going to step down as CEO of GE after 16 years. But GE in recent history uh, just, just hasn't had the growth. Now, part of it is they're huge. They're, they're, they're big. And Amazon's getting big. And then that's something you, you need to be concerned about at some point in the future, I'm sure. But GE is big, and it's almost so big that no matter what it does, it doesn't affect its growth very much. But in recent years, we've seen GE do things that many companies have done, many blue chip companies have done in the market, and that is they spend more money on dividends and stock buybacks than they do on capital expenditures. You can't grow a company by giving all your money back in dividends and stock buyback rather than innovation and capital expenditures. The unique thing with Amazon, as I've said, they're not really concerned about free cash flow. They're concerned about cutting edge technology, cutting edge marketing, making their their uh, stockholders happy as well as all the people that use their products. So that's their main drive. The day will come, I think, where Amazon may be too big to take advantage of some of the things they can buy. But it, it stresses the point that we need Amazons more than we need General Electrics, and we need Amazons of the mid-90s and earlier. Amazon's getting big, but Amazon, Jeff Bezos, very creative, very innovative. That's what the market needs. Little creative disruption and uh, positive growth there. Coming up next, I get to chat with Peter Wallison. Looking forward to that. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Peter J. Wallison. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and co-director of AEI's program on financial policy studies where he researches banking, insurance, and securities regulation. As general counsel of the U.S. Treasury Department, he had a significant role in the development of the Reagan administration's proposals for deregulation of the financial services industry. He also served as White House counsel to President Ronald Reagan. Peter, welcome back to An Economy of One. Well, wonderful to be with you. Thanks. I, I appreciate you taking the time with us today. Uh, a couple things I wanted to chat with. Uh, first of all, you recently wrote a column talking about the Choice Act, and and one of the, the banes of my existence for several years now has been Dodd-Frank. And uh, now the, the, the Choice Act is, is that a counter to Dodd-Frank? Does it really really make some progress here? 
Oh, it makes tremendous progress. It's a huge advance. Its prospects in the Senate are not great for reasons we can talk about, but mm -hmm. the Choice Act is its not quite a repeal of the Dodd-Frank Act, but it eliminates most of the major problems that the Dodd-Frank Act creates. Now, let's step back just a minute or just a little bit on uh, the Dodd-Frank and, and why was Dodd-Frank created? And I, I've, I've noticed in, in your column, and I also read your uh, testimony uh, in Congress, um, it was completely unnecessary, in your opinion. So why was it created, and why was it unnecessary? Well, it was unnecessary because the Congress completely misdiagnosed, probably deliberately, but uh, completely <laughs> misdiagnosed, uh, the causes of the 2008 financial crisis. The Congress came into office. Um, Barney Frank, who was the most important member of the House and chairman of the House Financial Services Committee at that point, said, we are going to enact a new, new deal as a result of this financial crisis, which meant they were going to put much more regulation on the financial system, and they were going to do that because their diagnosis of the financial crisis was that it was caused by risky activities and greed by the banking and financial system. But in fact, the financial crisis was caused by government housing policy, policy that Barney Frank and many, many others had been supporting for many years. And that housing policy reduced the underwriting standards that were used in the U.S. housing finance system so that by the year 2008, just before the financial crisis, more than half of all mortgages in the United States were subprime mortgages. And of those, 76% were on the books of government agencies like the two great mortgage companies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So that proves without any doubt that it was that it was that the government created the demand for these subprime and very weak mortgages. And when they failed, we had a financial crisis. Now, that goes clear back to 1992, doesn't it? Didn't, didn't it start back then as far as the quotas and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, getting instructions on, on what type of loans they should accept and what percentages and stuff? I mean, doesn't that go back a long ways? Yes, it really does. In 1992, that's when Congress adopted something called the Affordable Housing Goals. And uh, the goals required that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that were basically the major players in the housing finance market in the United States, that any time they bought mortgages, they didn't make mortgages themselves, they bought these mortgages from banks and other originators. Whenever they bought mortgages, in initially 30% of all those mortgages had to be made to people who were at or below the median income in the places where they lived. Uh, then the authority to increase those quotas uh, was given to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and they began to increase those quotas very aggressively so that by the year 2008, more than 50% of all mortgages that were bought by Fannie and Freddie had to be made to people who were at or below median income. You cannot find prime, good quality mortgages to fill your quotas um, when you have to buy 
of mortgages from people below median income. It's just mm-hmm. obvious. And so what Fannie and Freddie had to do was to reduce their underwriting standards, and that caused the entire market in the United States to reduce its underwriting standards so that we had this enormous housing bubble with enormous uh, numbers of poor quality subprime mortgages coming into the market. And when that bubble grew to mammoth proportions uh, by 2007, it began to deflate. And that is what caused the crisis because these mortgages were held by banks and other financial institutions as well as by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the banks and others who were holding these mortgages um, became, in many cases, very weak. Mm-hmm. And so the market began to worry about their solvency, and that's what uh, caused uh, the huge downdraft in our economy in 2008. Now, with with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac lowering those standards, you know, it used to be, I mean, when I was growing up, it was very common to have 20% down. That was kind of the, the standard. Then it went to 10, then it went to 3, then it went to 0% uh, percent <laughs> right. down. You know, does that... I mean, the banks aren't, aren't aren't totally blameless and all that. That just kind of lowered the standards for everybody to, to write those mortgages, didn't it? Yeah, sure, it did. But the reason it does that is that Fannie and Freddie were the biggest buyers of mortgages in the market. Mm-hmm. And when they said, we will now start to take mortgages with 5% or 3% or even 0% down, what are the other what are the originators like the banks supposed to say when people come and say to them um, gee we hear our neighbor has just gotten a mortgage with 3% down or zero down so the bank can say okay well we we won't make those mortgages on the other hand they know the bank knows that if they did make such a mortgage they could sell it to Fannie and Freddie because yeah. that's what Fannie and Freddie was willing to buy so that's how all those mortgages got into the financial system. It was because initially Fannie and Freddie reduced their underwriting standards substantially. Everyone else then wanted all those con- who was buying a home during this period wanted these concessionary loans, and so the banks had to make them for competitive reasons. Now, it, you know, I, I, I've been around long enough, you've been around long enough to know that, that uh, Congress rarely learns from from history, and in recent weeks, I've read articles where uh, not enough people are buying homes, not enough mortgages are getting out there, and they're talking about lowering uh, requirements and standards again. Are we we getting on the right again, or does the Choice Act change some of the fundamental things that caused Fannie and Freddie to do this in the first place? Well, we are on exactly the same pattern again. And the reason we are on the same pattern as we were in the mid-1990s is because Congress refused to change the housing policies. They blamed the financial crisis on the banks and Wall Street and so forth. Um, They left the housing policies exactly the way they are. And again, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, now under the control of the government because they became insolvent in 2008, Fannie and Freddie, again, are making very concessionary mortgages with very low down payments, and that is putting great upward pressure on housing prices. It's very easy to understand how this occurs 
if you if a person has a, has ten thousand dollars as a down payment to buy a home, and the and the uh, underwriting standard is a ten percent down payment requirement, well, you can buy a hundred thousand dollar home. But if they reduce the underwriting standard to five percent, you can then buy a two hundred thousand dollar home. And of course, everyone wants to buy the two hundred thousand dollar home instead of the one hundred thousand dollar home, so they borrow more. And that puts tremendous upward pressure on housing prices, and that's why we have this bubble um, over time. And that's what's occurring right now, because Fannie and Freddie are making very concessionary loans. So is the Federal Housing Administration, another federal government agency. And those loans are forcing housing prices up. People who want, who want to buy their first home are unable to afford the first home because housing prices are rising so fast, and we're on our way uh, to um, uh, a, another financial crisis unless we get our hands around government housing policy. We are not doing that we, because Congress is now protecting the uh, original housing policy, it's the Democrats in Congress, especially in the Senate, where they have the power to uh, prevent a vote um, on any kind of repeal, they are protecting that uh, policy, that housing policy, by focusing entirely on the possibility that elements of the Dodd-Frank Act might be uh, eliminated or modified as they would be when the Choice Act, passed by the House a couple of weeks ago, gets to the Senate for action. So. The re what we really want here, what would be good for the country and to prevent another crisis would be for the Choice Act to be adopted in the Senate and eliminate so many bad elements of the Dodd-Frank Act, which have been suppressing growth in the United States and also allowing this terrible housing financial uh, system uh, to flourish. Absolutely incredible. I got it, uh, about a minute or so left with you uh, today. Let's switch gears a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Comey case and and uh, oh, yes. President Trump. You re wrote a commentary recently that I read through, and, and I, I just I, I'm just almost at a loss for words. At you know, I hate to use the word witch hunt, but my goodness, this seems totally totally unfair and, and absurd to. President Trump, what's, what's your thoughts on on uh, FBI director, uh, former FBI director James Comey's testimony and uh, the, the special prosecutor they're, they're putting in there? Yeah, well, I'm really distressed, as you are, by what I'm seeing here. Uh, um, everything negative about President Trump is leaked. Yeah. And since we don't have any leak, uh, that suggests that he was real. He or his campaign was really involved in uh, any kind of collusion with Russia. Um, it looks as though the president is completely innocent. And in fact, what he what he fired Comey for was refusing to say to the American people the president is not a target. On March 20 of this year, Comey made the announcement that the FBI had been investigating the president's campaign. But he had been telling the president quietly three times that you're not a target. And, the, and Trump kept saying to him, well, if I'm not a target, 
this is really interfering with what I'm trying to do. Would you please make an announcement to the American people that I am not a target of your investigation? Trump and, and Comey refused to do that. So Trump fired him. Now, President Trump has done a lot of things that he probably shouldn't do, too many of these tweets and so forth, but there is seriously no evidence yet in all these investigations that suggests that he or his campaign did any collusion with the Russians. So we are now going to go through an entirely long process in which a special uh, a counsel at the Justice Department will investigate that and the firing of Comey and a lot of other issues. Um, probably completely unnecessary, uh, but that's the way our system has come to be after all of these the sensitivity in the media and all of the charges that have been released into the media and the way President Trump has reacted to some of those charges. So we're going to go through this process, I think, at the end, based on what common sense would tell you. Um, they will not find anything that would implicate the president, but it is going to be a long and uh, difficult time for the country. We've been talking with Peter J. Wallison, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Peter, as always, this is a true honor for me. Uh, I appreciate all your time and all your insight and uh, look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. Well, I hope so. Coming up next, government subsidies that I'm having trouble deciding which side of the fence I'm on. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This week, a couple senators introduced some legislation called the Eliminating Federal Tax Subsidies for Stadiums Act. And uh, essentially what this boils down to is they, they want to get rid of the federal government essentially financing sports stadiums and for uh, what they call multi-million, sometimes billion-dollar franchises. And I got to tell you, I, I, I'm having trouble with this because they, they're, they're grouping uh, or classifying federal government subsidies to uh, municipal bonds. And the fact that people who invest in municipal bonds don't have to pay federal income tax on the interest they earn. Now... They call that a, a federal government sab, uh, subsidy. For years, uh, probably decades, stadiums, sports stadiums, have been able to use financing through municipal bonds. Municipal bonds traditionally are exempt from federal income taxes. Now, it, what, what bothers me with the article, with the um, article about the the legislation is they're grouping financing the stadium with the tax freeness of the interest on the bonds. And those are two different things. The people who buy those bonds are not necessarily millionaires and billionaires. 
Furthermore, through the alternative minimum tax, millionaires and billionaires don't get tax freeness on tax-free municipal bonds. That is um, called a preference item. It comes back into their taxes and they have to pay tax on municipal bond income. Really what the, the advantage to the stadiums are is generally speaking, municipal bonds have a lower interest rate versus other types of financing out there. The reason I'm, I'm torn on this is I don't think the federal government should finance anything uh, like that in the private sector. I think it ought to stand on its own. But on the flip side, I have seen firsthand what a new stadium does to a community. My hometown of Toledo, Ohio, uh, I was against a new ballpark being put downtown for our AAA team. And uh, I was wrong. I, I'll admit that. Um, I was wrong. It paid for itself early, paid off the debt early. It spurred a lot of new businesses around the stadium, restaurants, uh, bars, stores, uh, that kind of stuff. And it's been a, a jewel for the community. And I would even venture to say, uh, another stadium was, uh, created in in the uh, city because of the mud hen stadium so um there's a lot of peripheral businesses now people will say no that's been proven wrong you don't get extra money uh i've seen it i have seen it and the confusion around the government subsidies it's it, it makes it sound like taxpayers are paying for it when in fact the municipal bond interest is not federally taxed and they don't take into consideration that it's the average guy you and me that buy most of these municipal bonds that get the tax break on the interest we buy them for the tax break we buy them to support the community we buy them for safety and income we buy them for a lot of reasons but it's not the millionaires and billionaires that benefit they do benefit from the availability of the financing and probably the lower interest. But like I said, I have seen firsthand what a new stadium does to a community. And what they're not counting is what not getting a stadium will not do for a community. I know you can't prove a negative. You certainly can't quantify a negative. But you can quantify a positive, and I've seen it. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.